Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, head eyebrow and eyelid drooping and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. On the evening of December 23rd, 1959, a young woman named Margaret Catterba was getting ready to leave her hostel lodgings to see her family for the festive period. As she was packing her suitcase, she heard a scream. Margaret momentarily stopped what she was doing and listened intently. She heard nothing more. Margaret assumed it was one of the other hostel residents joking around in their room. When her suitcase was finally packed, she hauled the luggage out of the door at the back of the Queen's Wing of the YWCA Hostel in Edgbaston. It was just before 7pm. Margaret Catterbar was blissfully unaware that she was walking away from the scene of one of the most horrific murders in Birmingham's history. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 31 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part case. The second instalment will be available in three days. The YWCA hostel on Wheelies Road was established in a large historic building that had fallen out of favour. The premises had been named Edencroft, a title that conjures images of greenery, but the property which had seen better days was located on a darkened stretch of road. To the right of the main building was the Queen's Wing, a prefabricated single-storey building with 12 small flats. There was also an annex with eight further rooms allowing more women to stay at the hostel. One of the residents was 20-year-old Margaret Brown. 
Margaret returned to the hostel around 6pm on December 23, 1959. She had her supper before deciding to wind her clothes in the ironing room, which formed part of the main building. Margaret was getting ready to spend Christmas with her mother in Edinburgh. She was especially looking forward to the visit, as it would be her last chance to go home before her wedding the following spring. Along with her fiancé Stuart Campbell, a newly qualified architect, she had been excitedly planning the event for some time. Margaret grabbed a small bundle of dirty clothes and walked to the shared laundry facilities in the main building at around 7.20pm. Reaching the outer door leading into the laundry room, she switched on the light and then continued into the adjoining ironing room. While waiting for the iron to heat up, Margaret returned to her room to get another pile of clothes. After ironing for a few minutes, she felt a cold draft blowing in through the open door between the ironing room and the laundry room. Pausing her duties to identify the source of the drop in temperature, Margaret walked through the rooms and found the outside door slightly ajar. Margaret closed the door and, unconcerned, went back to the arduous task of laundry day. Moments later, she again lost focus when she heard a click. It sounded like the outer door was open. Frustrated, having to pause her chores to close the outer door for a second time, she also decided to close the door between the laundry room and the ironing room to avoid being disturbed. As Margaret headed back to her ironing, she heard a click for a third time, followed by the sound of a light switch being flipped. The room was suddenly dark. Margaret looked up and strained to see through the glass panels of the inner door. She knew the light switch was just on the other side. Then she saw the shadow of someone moving near the outer door. She called out, Who's there? With no other choice, she approached the door and opened it. While standing in the doorway, Margaret was startled by a man running towards her from her right side. Instinctively, she ducked, but someone moving much faster struck her on the back of the head. She let out an involuntary scream and put her hands over her head to protect herself from any further blows. While shielding herself, the man disappeared, leaving Margaret injured on the floor. She took a mental note of how the attacker's footsteps were silent as he ran from the room. Blood trickled down the back of her neck as she got up and rushed to the kitchen, calling out for help. Her cries were heard by the kitchen staff and the bursar of the hostel, Molly Fitzgerald. Sobbing and holding her head, Margaret was consoled by staff members as Molly called 999. The emergency call was relayed to officers who happened to be scanning the area in their patrol cars. Police Constable John Cowley was among the first to arrive at the scene just after 7.45pm. Margaret told the officer she believed her attacker was in his mid to late twenties. He stood around five feet eight inches tall, with fair hair, a reddish complexion, a square chin, and what she described as a well-shaped forehead. Margaret also recounted how the man's footsteps made no sound. She assumed he must have been wearing rubber-soled shoes. PC Albert Moore also attended the scene. Bursa Molly Fitzgerald led him out into the garden towards the ironing room. They spotted a white bra on the ground, and in the ironing room they found a six-pound rock that was believed to have come from a rockery display nearby. PC Moore searched the hostel grounds with the aid of a police dog, while PC John Cowley spoke to others at the scene. Margaret Brown was transported to a local hospital by ambulance to treat her head wound. 
Almost an hour had passed since Margaret Brown was attacked, and there was no sign of a man who struck her with the rock found nearby. Officers from what was then the Birmingham City Police continued searching the hostile grounds for any sign of the attacker, and in the process they noticed some large footprints in the sand close to the Queen's Wing. The corridor in the hostel wing was illuminated by the hallway light. It appeared that the bedrooms were likely unoccupied because no lights could be seen shining through the small glass panels above the doors. Officers at the scene decided to check all of the rooms in the Queen's Wing. Most of them seemed undisturbed. That was until they got to room six. The window was unlocked, and there was a muddy footprint on a blanket on the bed. Discarded beneath the bed, they found a piece of white cloth marked with another footprint. Officers also noted that the door to room four was bolted shut from the inside, so PC Cowley walked outside the building to try and look through the window. He could see another footprint on the windowsill and he was able to push the unlatched window open. There was a ten-inch gap between the curtains. As PC Cowley scanned the room, on the floor next to the bed he could see a woman's legs. He shouted to PC Moore who was in the corridor, and Moore wasted no time in using his body weight to burst through the door. The officer switched on the light in the room, and recoiled in horror. On the floor lying parallel to the bed was a woman's blooded body. Her severed head was on the bed. The scene was so shocking that the first officers who entered the room would eventually take leave from work. Even so, their immediate response was to process the scene as trained, including contacting a home office pathologist. The homicide detectives in Birmingham CID were also informed. Staff at the hostel were forthcoming and told the officers that the room had been occupied by a young woman named Stephanie. Sydney Stephanie Baird was born in 1932. She went by her middle name. Stephanie was raised in a village just outside of Cheltenham called Bishop's Cleave. She was one of two daughters born to Sidney George Baird, a Scottish-born milliner, and his wife Janet, who was originally from Wales. Stephanie and her sister Barbara were friendly but quiet girls who attended the village primary school before obtaining scholarships to Pate's Grammar School. Both the girls seemed to be as sharp as tacks. Stephanie and Barbara both won honours and awards for their exam results. After finishing school, Stephanie took a shorthand and typing course before beginning work at Webb Brothers, a coal merchant's in Cheltenham. Locals in Bishop's Cleave later described Stephanie as reserved with few friends. One local told a correspondent for the Evening Post newspaper. She did little mixing but was well-liked in the village. Stephanie and Barbara's father passed away in July 1955, and a few years later their mother Janet remarried a local man named Edgar Thomas. By this point the siblings had moved out of the family home. Barbara was living in Bristol with her husband Arthur and their two children, and Stephanie had taken a job as a shorthand typist in Birmingham. By the summer of 1959, Stephanie was working for a local construction firm but was unexpectedly made redundant. The sudden loss of her job worsened the depression she had been feeling. She was admitted to the Midlands Nerve Hospital to be treated for what was then described as a nervous breakdown. After being discharged, Stephanie moved into the YWCA hostel in August of that year. According to her sister, Stephanie was trying to find a new job. 
The 29-year-old was single and kept mostly to herself. She was introverted, but pleasant whenever making conversation. The other residents in the hostel didn't seem to have any problems with Stephanie Baird, and it was a huge shock to them all when she was found to have been murdered in such a horrific way. After they learned of her death, Stephanie's mother and stepfather travelled from Cheltenham to Birmingham by train. Her stepfather Edgar would have to identify Stephanie's body. Back at the hostel on Wheelies Road, scenes of crime officers including Detective Sergeant Jay Bellow attended the scene and photographed the body and any evidential items in room four of the Queen's Wing. Home office pathologist Dr. Frederick Griffiths arrived just before 11pm that night. Detective Chief Superintendent James Horton, head of Birmingham CID, had already set up roadblocks around Edgbaston and sent scores of officers around the area to speak to locals. Pathologist Dr. Griffiths examined the body in situ. He found Stephanie lying on the floor next to the bed in the cramped confines of the six-foot by eight-foot room. Stephanie's head had been severed at the base of the neck, left on the bed next to a knife handle and a red pullover that was inside out. The body had been mutilated to a considerable degree. There were numerous puncture wounds visible across Stephanie's torso and the lower half of her body. A nylon stocking was missing from her left leg, later found in two pieces amongst the other clothes strewn around the room. Upon closer inspection, the blade of a table knife was recovered, wrapped in a blood-stained handkerchief beneath a pink slip on Stephanie's body. The blade, along with the white knife handle that was on the bed, had been collected by Detective Sergeant Cyril Morgan. Detective Inspector Arnold Jackson assisted in collecting a handbag, purse, nylon stockings, a handkerchief and a pair of scissors found at the foot of the bed. After Stephanie's body had been removed to the mortuary for a post-mortem, detectives noticed something peculiar on top of the dressing table in the room. It was an envelope and written on it were the hastily scrawled words. This was the thing I thought would never happen. The word thought had been spelt incorrectly. Comparing the note against the writing found in Stephanie's leather-bound diary and the weekly letter she sent her mother, investigators concluded the note must have been written by her killer. A preliminary examination indicated that Stephanie Baird had been struck on the back of her head, rendering her unconscious before she was assaulted further. While investigators waited for Dr Griffiths' post-mortem findings, they contacted all of the residents of the hostel to try and narrow down the time frame in which Stephanie was attacked. They spoke to Judith Ann Robinson, a Birmingham University student who had been staying in room six of the Queen's Wing until earlier that month. Although this was not the room where Stephanie Baird's body was found, the killer gained entry via this route to get to room four. Judith said that she had left the window fastened and secured, and she had put a piece of white cloth on the inner windowsill to soak up any rainwater that came in from the smaller window pane above it. This wasn't locked. Judith was also able to confirm that there were no footprints on her bed or on the cloth when she left, so detectives assumed that someone had reached in through the upper window to unlock the main window before stepping into the room, leaving footprints on the cloth and blanket. Similar marks were found in the sand outside the Queenswing. Plaster cast impressions of those footprints were taken by Detective Chief Inspector Albert Ratcliffe. 
Senior Experimental Officer John Merchant from the West Midlands Forensic Laboratory examined a number of blood-stained items from the scene of Stephanie's murder and the scene of Margaret's attack. Merchant confirmed the presence of human blood on all of the clothing and bladed articles that were taken from room four. He also found blood on the light switch in the laundry room, which confirmed that the man who had killed Stephanie had also tried to kill Margaret Brown. Pieces of Margaret's hair and blood were found on the six-pound rock used in the attack. Margaret was discharged from the hospital later that night, and it was subsequently reported that the medical staff believed that as she put her hair in a bun, it had protected her skull and possibly saved her life. Margaret went on to stay with her fiancé's parents while she recovered. The following day, her mother spoke to a correspondent with the Birmingham Evening Mail from her home in Edinburgh. She phoned last night and spoke to my brother, Dr. MacDonald. Margaret was very upset but did not say much about the affair. She merely said she had been attacked. We hope she will be home for Christmas. As the search for Stephanie Baird's killer continued, the Birmingham City Police heard from a bus conductor who had seen a suspicious passenger getting on the bus at a stop a short distance from the hostel. 21-year-old William Humphreys was only in his third week on the job as the conductor of the number 8 Inner Circle bus. He said... I thought there was something funny about this man when he got on the bus in Islington Row. He ran up the stairs, and although the bus was crowded, he managed to get a seat on his own. When I went up to him for the fare, he held up a sixpence. Twice I asked him where he wanted to go, but he never spoke. He seemed in a daze. Then I noticed his hands were covered in blood and he had what I thought were bloodstains on his clothing. The man had boarded the bus at around 7.50pm on the night of the murder, shortly after Margaret Brown was attacked. He sat on the top deck of the fourth row of the bus. Detective Chief Superintendent James Horton said, It appeared to the conductor, although the bus was full, no one would sit next to this man because of his condition. His right hand was covered with wet blood and his left hand with dry blood. His clothing was bloodstained. William Humphreys relayed a description of the bloody passenger. The man was described as being in his mid-twenties, standing around five feet nine inches tall, with fair curly hair that looked as though it had not been cut for some time. He was wearing a brown or tan-coloured hip-length American-style jacket, but no hat or overcoat despite the cold weather. The man was believed to have disembarked the bus somewhere between the Five Ways and Aston districts. Detective Horton appealed to all of the 60 passengers on the bus to come forward, and also appealed to anyone who knew someone fitting the description of the suspect, especially as investigators believed the killer lived close to the hostel. The bus was brought to the garage at the Liverpool Street bus depot for a technical examination. The bloodstains on the seat the man had been sitting on were swabbed for analysis. Over the Christmas period, flyers were swiftly printed and displayed throughout Edgbaston and the rest of Birmingham in an attempt to track down the passengers. The flyers read in part, Two men are believed to have spoken to this man on the platform when they were alighting from the bus. A man and a boy are known to have noticed the blood on the floor under the seat after the man had left the bus, and they refused to sit there. Assistant Chief Constable of Birmingham City Police George Blackborough spoke about the mysterious blooded passenger. 
One of the most important aspects of the case is that this man must have tried to account for the bloodstains to his wife, his landlady or to fellow lodgers. Obviously, he must have given a phony story. He may have said he had been involved in a fight. Roadblocks across the Midlands led to drivers being questioned and having their clothes examined. Christmas leave for the majority of the officers in the local constabulary was cancelled, and a special task force was set up to investigate the murder and attempted murder at the YWCA hostel. It was reported that detectives on the case theorised the killer had been prowling around the grounds and looking through windows, before climbing through the window of room 6 and walking down the hall to Stephanie Baird's room. It was believed that he had then confronted her in room 4 and locked the door before mutilating her body. The passengers that had been on the number 8 bus on the night of the murder were slow to come forward, either out of fear or the fact that it was the Christmas period. At around 7.45 that evening, Evelyn Peake, who was married to the owner of a pub on Wheelie's Road, had been walking along the street with a male friend when she saw a man leaning against the wall of the bus stop. He was clutching his stomach, and at first Evelyn thought that he might be a regular at the pub who had had too much to drink. But as she crossed the street with her companion to check on him, she realised she didn't recognise the man at all. A friend asked the stranger what he was doing, and the man replied in what was described as a quiet and educated voice. I will be all right when I get a bus. Evelyn recounted that his face was dirty, and during their exchange the stranger claimed that he had fallen in a garden. Evelyn said the man she had seen fit the description of the bus passenger published in local papers she believed he had been carrying a plastic bag. Investigators initially suspected that the attacker had swung a rock in a plastic bag when he attacked Margaret Brown, but they eventually concluded that he had used the white bra found on the ground in the garden to swing the rock. In an almost unprecedented move in a homicide investigation during that day and age, Detective Horton made a televised appeal on Boxing Day to the passengers of the number 8 bus. House-to-house inquiries were ongoing throughout Edgbaston and along the bus route, with the police focusing heavily on the areas of Aston and Hockley where it was believed the blooded passenger got off the bus. Two days later on December 28th, as most workers in the area returned to their jobs after the Christmas break, the police conducted widespread checks across offices and factories. They considered that the attacker may have attended a Christmas party before the murder and asked employers to report any workers who hadn't been seen since. The police were also anxious to hear about any man who had not yet returned to his lodgings after the Christmas period. Detective Horton, who had spoken to local and national television and radio stations during the four days he had been leading the investigation, said, The man who has committed this dreadful crime is obviously a pathological sadist. He must be found. A conference between senior detectives from Birmingham and surrounding forces was held later that afternoon, with almost 100 officers in attendance. Detective Horton was assisted at the conference by Detective Chief Inspector Saunders from F Division at the Speedwell Road Police Station where the task force was based. They displayed videos and photographs from the scene of the crime and areas along the bus route. Perplexingly, only three bus passengers had come forward and Detective Horton said that while the man on the bus might not have been the killer... It was essential to trace him so he could be eliminated from the inquiry. The senior investigating officer said, It is vital that the murderer should be located quickly, 
for there is grave danger that he may strike again. The bloodstains identified throughout Stephanie Baird's room were compared to those found on the bus. Scientific testing confirmed they were from the same blood group, but this was not as compelling as it seemed. Stephanie had the same blood type as almost half of the country's population. The following day, the three main witnesses in the case, Margaret Brown, Evelyn Peake and the bus conductor William Humphreys, were brought to Scotland Yard to view thousands of photographs of men in what was called the Rogues Gallery. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As the investigators pieced together the final hours of Stephanie Baird's life, he learned that she had been to an appointment at a salon in town at 4pm on the day she was killed. She had been in the salon chair for an hour and a half as she had a shampoo and set before she left to get the bus back to the hostel at around 5.30pm. The police wondered if Stephanie had been followed when she left the hairdressers and appealed for witnesses who might have seen her on the bus or walking into the hostel. Coincidentally, on the night of December 23rd, three nurses reported that they had been followed by a man matching the description of the blooded bus passenger. They had been walking home from the Nerve Hospital on Bath Row to their quarters at Queen Elizabeth Hospital. The nurses' route brought them past the YWCA Hostel. In turn, the police looked into any peeping Tom reports from the area, and questioned any local men with violent convictions. A police guard had been monitoring the hostel grounds constantly since the night of the attack, and other officers stood guard outside of neighbouring nurses' lodgings. Despite this, newspaper reports suggested that the majority of hostel residents had left. Mrs. Pledger, the matron of the YWCA hostel, was quick to correct the record when she said, One of two of the nervous ones have gone to stay with friends, despite the fact that we have day and night protection from the police. But it is not true to say there has been a mass desertion from the hostel. The sense of fear in the area was so intense that it was reported Aston Villa football players did not want to travel to play in Bournemouth because they would have to leave their wives. In response to the palpable unease in the city, a senior officer said, A murderer is at large, but that does not mean that people should panic or that wild rumours should be spread. Naturally, all sensible people will take precautions. For instance, women should not go out unaccompanied at night unless it is unavoidable. They should keep to well-lit roads whenever possible. They should not take shortcuts down dark alleys. 
Anyone feeling suspicious about anything needing immediate attention should dial 999. That swings elaborate machinery into action at once. Less urgent information should be given to a police officer or the nearest police station. Several of the hostel's residents would return when room four of the Queen's Wing was blessed by the vicar of St. James's Church. In an effort to follow all lines of inquiry, the Birmingham City Police checked through all of the suicide deaths and attempted suicides in the days since the murder. A photograph of a policewoman dressed in the same clothes Stephanie Baird had been wearing on the evening of her murder was also circulated to local papers and television stations. She was dressed in a rubberized coat patterned with green speckles and a turquoise collar, along with a hat to match. Furthermore, a bloodstained jacket was found on a pew in St Mary's Church in Tutbury, 35 miles from the scene, after a woman reported seeing a man matching the description of the prime suspect sitting alone inside the church. On the night of December 29th, 140 officers working the case were divided into flying squads that were tasked with raiding the houses of six men and bringing them in for questioning. Frustratingly, all of the men were ultimately eliminated from the inquiry. Thousands of letters and calls were received at the investigation headquarters at Speedwell Road Police Station. Although many led to dead ends, the police told people not to be discouraged from reporting anything. They did not mind following thousands of leads as it only took one to find the person responsible. Among the near countless 999 calls made about the crime, several men were arrested for making fraudulent reports in which they either claimed to be the killer or claimed they knew who the killer was. The primary motivation was the reward on offer. By the end of the first week of the investigation, it had reached £3,500. On December 30th, 1959, the inquest into Stephanie Baird's death was opened and adjourned pending the outcome of the investigation. The coroner, Mr Billingham, said... This perfectly respectable girl has met a terrible death. Since the discovery of her body just over a week ago, the police have made repeated appeals to passengers to come forward. If there ever was a matter in which the public can assist the police, this is it. A post-mortem report was completed by Dr Frederick Griffiths but the police refrained from publishing the details while the inquiry was ongoing. The cause of death was listed as manual strangulation, but there were a number of other injuries inflicted on Stephanie's body after she died. She had sustained a skull fracture, which was consistent with her falling backwards and hitting her head on the hard floor. It was believed that she had then been strangled to death before the killer decapitated her and mutilated her body. There were multiple scratch marks on her neck just above where it had been severed. Her right breast had been removed and there were multiple lacerations across her chest, back and the lower half of her body. Shallow wounds on her chest were believed to have been inflicted by the scissors that had been found at the foot of the bed, and the rest of the injuries were caused by the broken table knife. The pathologist found no defensive wounds or clear signs of sexual assault. However, after speaking with psychiatrists, the police were convinced that there was a sexual motive behind the crime. The psychiatrists who had been consulted said that the man they were looking for likely hated women, and they believed he exhibited a similar pattern of behaviour to John Hake, 
sadistic serial killer who had been convicted of killing six people and was executed ten years prior. The police reported that the person they were looking for probably seemed normal to most people, but he harboured a profound contempt for women. While members of the murder squad continued their work as the public rang in the new year, a reward offered by the News of the World newspaper doubled from £2,500 to £5,000. Along with an anonymous donation of £1,000, the total reward offered was £6,000, equivalent to over £150,000 today. One of the main witnesses, Evelyn Peake, the woman who had seen a man standing at the bus stop, began receiving several threatening letters. Much like Margaret Brown, who had survived after being attacked by someone believed to be the killer, Evelyn had been under constant guard since she made contact with the police. That security tightened when Evelyn received a note that read, Shut your mouth or else. That note was accompanied by a crudely drawn dagger that was dripping with blood. The Midlands television announcer Jean Morton had also received a threatening letter that was signed, The YWCA Killer. The police determined that both notes were penned by someone other than the man they sought. As the sense of unease grew, there were calls for more lighting along the dark street leading to the hostel and throughout Edgbaston, as women were advised not to travel alone after dark. Old gas lamps were replaced by electric street lights as a result. When Birmingham University reopened after the new year, new regulations stated that no male friends would be allowed on the grounds, and female students had to travel in groups of at least four at all times. By this point, only 15 of the 60 passengers on board the number 8 bus had come forward despite the numerous appeals asking them to do so. Bus conductor William Humphreys said, I am as scared as they are, but let us get this matter squared up. I appeal to them to give whatever help they can so that we can all have some peace and quiet and some hope of a happy new year. There were concerns that the killer had been inspired by a recently released book on Jack the Ripper. Some of the 200 officers working on the case began checking who had borrowed any of the eight copies of the book available from libraries throughout Birmingham. Officers from the Birmingham City Police were doing all they could, and DCS Horton praised his colleagues when he said, Everyone working on the case has done so at a full stretch. A lot of the men are married and have hardly seen their wives and families for more than a few hours in the past three weeks. They have stayed on duty until 1 or 2 a.m., and are back on duty no later than 9 a.m. Investigators consulted with Interpol and the Irish police to see if there had been any similar murders on the off chance the killer had fled the country. After exhausting many resources on tracking down the blooded bus passenger, the police announced that the man was probably not Stephanie Baird's killer. However, they still wanted to speak to him to rule him out completely. Stephanie Baird's funeral had been delayed for a month due to the numerous medical and technical examinations the police and the pathologist needed to carry out. Her body was finally released to her mother in late January 1960, and Stephanie's funeral service was held less than four miles from her childhood home on January 29th. A private service at Cheltenham Cemetery was conducted by Reverend Edmonds. Uniformed police officers guarded all of the mourners who arrived at the cemetery's church. The service was held early in the morning to avoid crowds of onlookers and reporters. Before the hearse driven from Birmingham to Cheltenham pulled up at the cemetery, 
carrying the simple wooden casket with a brass plate inscribed with Stephanie's name and age, and slowly travelled past her mother's cottage in Bishop's Cleave. Many floral tributes had been left by detectives working the case and other residents of the YWCA hostel. Just over a week later, investigators had narrowed down the type of shoe they believed had left several shoe prints at the crime scene. They were estimated to be a size 11 Oxford shoe, likely black or brown, that could be bought for two guineas. They had welded composition soles, a plain toe cap and five lace holes. The sole had a linear pattern. Detective Horton told the Birmingham Post, Somewhere in Birmingham there are people who may have seen the shoes and the man wearing them. Someone may have even seen the murderer disposing of them. That person or persons could be the one link which would enable us to find the man we want. The investigation was in its seventh week. Hundreds of officers had carried out inquiries at homes, factories, building sites, offices and lodging houses across Birmingham. The police had interviewed over 12,000 men, visited tens of thousands of homes and taken over 50,000 statements. Due to the dismemberment of Stephanie Baird's body, detectives had initially suspected someone with anatomical knowledge so those interviewed included hundreds of medical students and butchers. Tens of thousands of questionnaires had been sent out and returned to the headquarters at Speedwell Road. With all other lines of inquiry exhausted, the police began speaking with men who had been in the city at the time of the murder, even if they had explained their reasons for leaving. After speaking with landlords in Edgbaston, the Birmingham City Police asked Warrington-based Detective Sergeant George Wellborn to follow up with men in his jurisdiction. One man lodging at a house in Islington Row had since moved back in with his widowed mother and three younger sisters on Birchall Street in Warrington, around 80 miles away. Detective Wellborn called to the house on February 9th and was told that 27-year-old Patrick Joseph Byrne wasn't home. Wellborn asked Mrs Byrne to tell her son to stop by at the Central Police Office on Arpley Street when he finished work. Byrne did as he was instructed. He arrived at the station at 5.15pm and was greeted by Detective Wellborn. Byrne said that he had been lodging in Islington Row at the time of the murder, and had been working for a local construction company for about five weeks, but decided to move in with his mother and sisters in Warrington. Detective Wellborn brought Byrne into an interview room to allow him to complete a questionnaire sent by Birmingham City Police. Once it was finished, the detective asked Byrne if he would be willing to provide fingerprint samples, and without hesitation, Byrne obliged. Before Detective Wellborn opened the door to allow Byrne to leave, he asked him if there was anything else he'd like to say about the time he'd spent in Birmingham. Byrne became visibly distressed and blurted out, I want to tell you about the YWCA. I had something to do with that. Detective Wellborn was taken aback and told Byrne it was a very serious matter. Patrick Byrne continued, I cannot sleep. It has been on my mind. I was coming down to see the police. These last seven weeks have been no good to me. Byrne was cautioned and was brought into a different room to be questioned by Detective Wellborn and Inspector Galbraith while they waited for Birmingham City CID detectives to arrive. Byrne told the officers that he had been drinking since dinner time on the day of the murder and had left work sometime before 5pm. He explained that he was just walking around alone 
when he noticed a woman entering the hostel grounds. He said, It was dark. I saw a woman preparing herself. She had on a red pullover. Ben climbed into the building through an open window and used a chair to watch the woman through a panel above her door, but she opened the door as he was about to leave. Byrne explained, The woman caught me. She said something about the warden. We struggled and fell on the floor. My hands were around her neck. She went quiet, and I left her. Lead investigator Detective Chief Superintendent James Horton arrived in Warrington to take Patrick Byrne back to Birmingham. He hoped that Byrne would make a full statement, but no one could comprehend the depravity Byrne's confession would reveal. This is the end of episode 31. The second instalment in this two-part case will be available in three days. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our patrons for their support. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.